Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading Fanny Crosby's Memories of 80 Years, and it is by Fanny Crosby, and there is no copyright on it. And we are on Chapter 4, Early Poetic Training. Even before I was eight years of age, my imagination was occupied with all sorts of material that I was constantly weaving into various forms. And among those were rude snitches of verse, none of which, however, saw the light of the newspapers. My mother was in the habit of reading to me from the best poets, and I soon became so presumptuous as to believe that I could improve on some of the hymns that were composed by the deacons of our Presbyterian church. Such subjects as the morning of the wind for the flowers seemed especially beautiful, and some lines written on this topic were copied by a friend and sent to my grandfather, who immediately hailed me as the promising poet. But he was very careful not to say much about it in my presence, because he thought that any words of praise might blast my budding poetic genius through the pride that I might feel. Nine years from that date, that same dear man walked four miles and back again for the purpose of purchasing a copy of the New York Herald containing some verses I had written on the death of General Harrison. One earlier effusion, be unknown to me, crept into the papers and might have caused me not a little trouble. It described the dishonest acts of a miller, then living not far from Ridgefield, who was in the habit of mixing his flour with cornmeal, and was sent by a friend of mine to the Herald of Freedom, a small weekly paper publishing by P.T. Barnum at Danbury. The gentleman who afterwards became so famous as the greatest showman in the world eventually thought my production worth exhibiting. For, much to my regret, he gave it a small corn in his paper. Thus might I have held an uncomfortable niche in the Hall of Fame provided by Mr. Barnum, but I chose only to exhibit the first stanza of my little ditty. There is a miller in our town, how dreadful is his case. I fear unless he does repent, he'll meet with sad disgrace. Sooner or later I had been informed, and nearly every budding poet takes to writing obituaries. My own experience at least bears out the statement. Though I am among the gayest of gay myself, the demise of any of the neighbors would cause my muse to shed a few sympathetic tears. How glad I am, however, that none of these early productions were preserved. What did a child, full of life as I was, understand of death? It would be more appropriate, therefore, to say that something about our games in Ridgefield. Every evening, 12 to 14 of us girls and boys were accustomed to gathering on the common, which was directly opposite our house, and play at Blind Man's Bluff, London Bridge, Hiding the Thimble, or some other game that little folks still enjoy. We had beside another one, which was called Spinning Wheel, because we wanted to blend down the mullen plant and use it to imitate the motions of a tread of a spinning wheel while all danced and sang an appropriate round or some popular song of the day. One of those now remembered was Scotland is Burning, and there were a score of others that have now long since passed into oblivion. Sometimes we made a ring by joining hands and circle around a boy and a girl, who stood in the center and represented a newly married couple. Meanwhile, we exhorted the boy, Now you're married, you must be good and keep your wife in oven wood. Some of the sentimental songs of the day were very beautiful and as well liked by the children as the modern ragtime ditties are by this generation. Many of them are still fresh in my mind and I still quote a stanza from one of them. The Rose of Allendale begins as follows. 
The morn was fair, the sky was clear, no breath came o'er the sea, when Mary left her highland cot and wandered forth with me. Though flowers decked the mountainside and fragrance filled the vale, by far the sweetest flower there was the rose of Allendale. Among the playmates who used to gather on the village green was Sylvester Maine, who was two or three years older than I. He was a prime favorite with a gentler sex, for he used to protect us from the annoyance of more mischievous boys. In the autumn of 1834, Mother and I left Ridgefield and went to live again in Westchester County. And then I bade my friend Sylvester adieu. Not until 30 years later did we meet again, this time, strangely enough, in the office of William B. Bradbury, with whom he was afterwards a business partner. And from 1864 to the time of his death in 1873, we worked together constantly. During the winter months, a music teacher came to Ridgefield twice a week to give singing lessons. As a textbook, we used the famous Handel and Handel Collection, which was first published in 1832 by the celebrated Dr. Lowell Mason. And from time to time, we eagerly bought the revised editions as they were issued. While our chorus was singing an unfamiliar tune, Lisbon, one evening the rest of the singers broke down, leaving me carrying the air all alone. And you must be sure I was much frightened at the sound of my own voice and would have cried had not the teacher spoken kind words assuring me that I had not committed any offense. I can still hear some of the sweet voices of my friends reverberating through the old Presbyterian meeting house, the tuning fork of the choir master as he set the pitch and the deep, mellow tenor of the minister as he answered the choir from the pulpit. Meanwhile, my imagination was always looking for something of interest. It was often satisfied with romantic tales of wildlife in the West or the story of Robin Hood and his remarkable brigands. Some of the members of our household was in the habit of reading aloud during the long winter evenings, and many a night, when they supposed me to be asleep, I was eagerly watching every word that was read. Don Quixote interested me somewhat, but a certain story that bears the telltale title of Rinaldo Rinaldin, the Bandit, captivated my fancy completely. And from that winter until the present, I have always been a warm admirer of that class of heroes, the good bandits of the storybooks. But I have not been fortunate enough to meet any of them in real life. Not many months passed ere my mind was teeming with sundry and diverse accounts of charitable bandits whose habits in general were to rescue poor wayfarers and send them on their journey with money in their pockets. For the sake of variety, a few bad robbers were sometimes thrown in, but sooner or later their chief would always emerge when they least expected it and compel them to return their dishonest gains. And the end of the story was not reached until they repented of their mode of life and actually reformed, though in some cases a term in prison was necessary to settle them in their new purpose. Another class of tales related to Sunday school children and how they went among the byways and hedges to compel the least fortunate ones to come in. One of my stories described a child left alone in the world by the death of both parents. In due time, this little girl was adopted by a lady whose daughter was the wife of a sea captain who had gone on a voyage, and just as they were sitting down to supper one evening, he returned. But there was also a stranger with him, and he proved to be an uncle to the orphan girl, and though he took her home to live with him, she never forgot the former protector and friend. Many quiet evenings I would sit alone in the twilight and repeat all the poems and passages of scripture that I knew. 
Thus, ten long summers passed, and I was still longing for an education, though my mother taught me many interesting things at home, and I read a great deal to me. It was about four years since that beautiful evening when I knelt beside my grandmother's rocking chair and repeated over and over the humble petition, Dear Lord, please show me how I can learn like other children. That's the end of that short story. Next week is Chapter 5, and it's the promise of an education. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.